to welcome everyone back to the DuckCon Wall today. I'm Monica Hoyle, your host, and the DuckCon Wall is a, a show where we get to sit and catch up with somebody on their story and on their projects, kind of like we're sitting on the Duck Pond wall on campus and catching up. And today I'm very excited that my guest is a member of the class of 2002, Twee Wynn Rocco, coming to us from Nashville today. How you doing, Twee? I'm doing well, Monica. I um, <laughs> Yeah, I graduated in 2002 at ENH um, in French and international relations. And I loved my time there. I always think about it. That's Especially fantastic. at the Duck Pond. <laughs> those million so, dollar ducks. I always think I about those million dollar ducks. <laughs> yeah. So what did you do at the Duck Pond? I probably should ask that question. Or do you want um, to tell? I used to sit up on the hill there and pay, play the pan flute. I remember like uh, we had campus visitors and they were like, wow, that's so like scenic that you're there playing the pan flute, you know, and there was my friends and I, we would go there and, you know, feed the ducks, probably unhealthy bread. bread. Yeah, I think they prefer corn, but, you know, whatever. They like the attention. And there's a lot of picnics there as well that we had and um, just a lot of great memories there walking to the beautiful campus. I always, always remember how beautiful Emory Henry was with all the Victorian architecture and everything. So it brings fond memories. What was your plan all along on what you were going to do? Yes. So I uh, wanted to work internationally because I love to travel and I never went anywhere until actually I went to school at ENH. um, um, Emory and Henry helped me. Um, well, part of my major was to um, study abroad. So it was a requirement, six credits abroad. So Dr. Saliba, Dr. Zhang, who was my French professor, Dr. Saliba was politics or political science. And they helped me um, study in France for, in tours, France for six months. So it was very, very, the first time I got uh, tra- to travel anywhere, especially internationally, and to be out on my own. It was such a, I really grew up a lot. It, it helped me become um, a real adult because I felt like I had never really went anywhere until I stepped out of um, my own you know, comfort zone and my own country, which was America. I think people underestimate the sort of self-confidence that you gain from doing study abroad, but you have to kind of figure things out for yourself when you're doing that. Yes, it was, it was scary because you're out there and uh, one there, um, I was in tourist France and not a lot of people spoke English. So really I had to use my French. Secondly, I lived with a host family with a couple other international students. So the dynamics there learning, you know, we, we learned to live with our roommates at ENH, but then you have like three or four other roommates who are international, <laughs> different cultures. That's so a great learning experience. And we had a table of just diverse students and diverse perspectives. It was really great conversations at the table. That is so great. Well, what a cool experience. Six months. That's a long time. Mm-hmm. It is a long time. <laughs> so where did you grow up? Um, I grew up here in Nashville. So I came here um, when I was four or five. Um, we our refugees, I was a child refugee from Vietnam. We were one of the last people that came over and we um, you know, came over by boat. We escaped to Thailand um, from Vietnam after my, my, my family, we worked with the American army. So we, are, we were considered traitors. So we had to really escape. So my, so my family, as soon as you know, North Vietnam won and the fall of South Saigon, Saigon, we, we really had to get out of there. So my, my mom tried seven times to leave the country. Um, and then we arrived to four refugee camps. So we stayed in refi- refugee camps for two years. 
um, in Thailand, I think Indonesia, Philippines, and, and there was another camp in Thailand that we stayed. And we waited there to get processed. And the great thing was U.S. was opening their, their borders for all U.S., all um, Vietnamese refugees. So we came over and we lived in California for a year um, to be placed um, by Catholic Charities here in Nashville because my aunt was, came first. And so that's how we arrived to Nashville. So I came here about the age of seven. Um, and then I started um, elementary school here. So I That's stayed awesome. here and with my, my, my mom and dad, and I'm still here. Well, okay. And that really is the, the crux of what we want to talk about today. You're getting ready to do a Lyceum on campus to talk a little bit about your experience. That's on March the 14th. And so we wanted to, to get this story out there a little bit for folks to know. You know, I'm embarrassed on every level about how dumb I am about history. And you can ask anybody, this is true. But when I got ready to talk to you, I had, I literally got out a pencil and piece of paper to do the math as to what age you are, because I consider you to be so young that for you to be that connected to the Vietnam War just kind of didn't make sense to me. I, I guess I'm, again, dumb about history. And I just forgot that just because we left, that didn't mean the war was over. Right, right. So, um, you know, millions of Vietnamese refugees. Well, we worked, uh, my mom, I think, spent about five years trying to escape. And um, she even was with me when I was a baby and toddler. We stayed in, we were imprisoned because we would get caught. And that's what happened was that if you, if you were lucky, you would escape right away. And yes, um, but it, it takes years for a refugee. And a lot of people don't, don't know that because yeah. um, it's just like, oh, we just thought overnight and we could just go. No, there's a huge like secretive like path. You got to find the right connection. You got to have money. And sometimes that leads to death and people steal from you, people, you know, murder you, you know, there, there's yeah. so many, so many unknowns. And so, but we had no choice because it's a, it was a death sentence there. Escaping mean that we have a possibility of living. Yeah. So right. that, that's why my parents left. So was and, your mom still pregnant with you when you actually got out of Vietnam? Yeah. So that's, you know, that's part of my, like the memoir that I wrote was that that's why I was the last surviving child. The only reason she stayed behind was that she was pregnant with me. So um, at the time, my, my dad left first. My dad with my three brothers and my sister and my aunt. And they had a chance to go first. And you know, my, my dad really didn't wanna go and leave my mom behind. But my mom was pregnant. There was no way she could make the trip. So she took, you know, I mean, my brothers were really young. They were like, perhaps the youngest was five. And, you know, seven, 10, I think the oldest was my, my sister was 12. And my, my aunt was a, she spoke English fluently. So she really wanted to go and help my dad. And so don't worry, you know, I'll, we'll get there and, you know, I'll help you. And that was the boat that, that capsized. And, and only your aunt survived in your family? Um, No one, no one survived. Oh, no one survived. So this is not the aunt that made it to Nashville. No. So my, my mom has like four sisters. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. Gotcha. So, um, yeah. So she has one that's still alive in two, sorry, two still alive in Vietnam and one here. Yeah. Nashville. So, so you lost your absolute entire family, except for your mom. Mm-hmm. Except for my mom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just the two of us. Yeah. Bless your heart. Well, of course you weren't born yet. So I could, you know, you, you don't really know exactly what your mom, no, went I, I guess know. she's talked to you about it, you know, over right. time, what that was like. Mm-hmm. Well, I do remember living in the refugee camps. Um, I was young, maybe three or four. 
But I remember that I would wait on the top of the stairway holding, we, we call this uh, this fruit, it's a, a longan. It's like a brown fruit and inside is a fleshy fruit um, that kind of textured like a grape, but it tastes like a melon and something like fruity and delicious. Fold a branch of that and my mom would leave that to me because she would have to go and try to find work because um, even at the refugee camp, they didn't really treat us very well because we were, you know, we were living on someone else's land and they really, you know, a lot of people don't appreciate that because, right. um, and, and a lot of funds came in internationally, but it never reached us. So a lot of us were starving. So the only way she could, could help was to, you know, to feed me was that she had to go out and sneak out and work. And she would work for this uh, Chinese restaurant um, and, and she would sew. So she would do all, all the things to collect some money to buy some real food and formula and things like that for me. And, di- and you know, I don't think I even have diapers, <laughs> but um, yeah. But, and, and then there was also like a lot of, I got sick a lot because, you know, we were poor nutrition, we were drinking. Yeah. Poor nutrition. We're drinking dirty water and we're camped so close that we're just stacked up on each other. So whoever got sick, I mean, lots of people got sick and passed away as well. A lot of kids, not kids didn't make it in the refugee camp. That must've been terrifying. I mean, for your mother to be trying to keep you alive in that situation and knowing that as as your book title says, you were the last surviving child. Right. You know, she was determined. She was, she lost everything. She she was not afraid of anything. I mean, I have to give that my, my mom was, is, is continued to be that survivor and it's really um, she has a lot of PTSD from it, a lot of mental illness from it, but she, uh, she really, I think after she lost everything, it took her a while. It took her about a year and she, you know, she walked around like a ghost, like mm. nothing was left. Yeah. It was my grandmother that convinced her that, Hey, you have to survive for your child. If, even if you don't want to live, your child is innocent. You know, and I think that really um, resonated with my mom and she changed her mentality to just su- completely survival mode. Wow. And she fought with, you know, she would go and fight with the, the communists, you know, military officers. I and mean, she would go and slap them and punch them and she would be thrown in jail. But they were a little bit nicer to her because they, she, they saw that she was like men- a little bit mentally unstable. And that, and that she was also with me. So they were slightly a little bit more humane. So she didn't, you know, she didn't get too much in trouble. Yeah. But even (laughs) the journey was very, very terrible because we had to hide, you know, on the beach. So what you do is, you know, you get the secret um, signal. You have to buy um, a ferry, a fishing ferry. You have to pay a, a, a fisherman to take you and bury you under a fish into international waters to meet a small fishing boat. That's probably the size of like, like a six person fishing boat, you know, yeah. it was a little ferry with no engine. And so my mom, and I was young, so I would cry. So if I was loud, I would get caught. So we got caught several times just because I cried. So, but she um, learned that she gave me some cough medicine and it kind of made me sleepy. So we would be the last, the last time we finally made it, we, we um, hid under like a, a foot of mud she told me, you know, we could hear the communist, um, you know, military walking on the beach and searching for, you know, people who ever, whoever were escaping. And when, um, how did you breathe? I know it's crazy. And, and then like, you know, when it clears, then we saw this, 
this, you know, uh, or she met with this ferryman and she's like, he's like, you gotta go under this tarp and then I'm gonna put a bunch of fish on you. And that's what she did. And he brought her to international water, but her, his boat was way too small to meet the other boat because they had an engine boat. So there was a bunch of waves. So she had actually had to jump out of the ferry, carry me and swim to the boat to get on. So it wasn't like, okay. oh, I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to jump from this boat to this boat. No, she had to swim. But my mom was always a very. like. And how old were you at that point? Um, I was like one or two. Oh, yeah. my gracious. One or oh two. Oh, my gracious. And, you know, and obviously to get on that boat, it takes, you know, if you ever travel by boat internationally, um, it takes a long time to get from Vietnam to Thailand. So it took about three, about a week, you know, about a week to get there. And there's yeah. no, you know, we got water, um, but barely any food. And I was a baby. So she said, you know, she barely made any milk, but she would put me on her chest. And we, um, she would lay in water mixed with like engine oil would, would be on her back for a whole week. And it just caused all kinds of, you know, uh, infections, she had, she had like staph infection and some, uh, all kinds of things besides, you know, starvation and dehydration. And obviously we're in tropical weather, so, you know, we, so we're not from the hot sun as well. So not many survivors. Not many, and even now, that's the same story for anyone that escapes by boat. I mean, you are out there in the elements, and the ocean is is. I mean, we again, we could easily end up like my 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 dad and my my siblings. Yeah, I, I read a quote the other day that says, "You know, people don't leave home until home makes it impossible to stay." And I think people forget the situations that refugees leave. You yep. know, we, we see people on the other side of the refugee issue, but not, you don't understand what people are leaving. Well, your I'm going to go back to your grandmother just a minute. Did she stay in Vietnam? Yeah. So she, you know, she's older, so she wouldn't have made, she was too frail. Yeah. And she was also, you know, we lived in a fishing village and she took care of the village. She hmm. was um, our medicine doctor for the village. So if she left, there would be no one to treat, you know, the villagers there. Yeah, she was very uh, Catholic and she also held like, you know, like all the you know, she helped, you know, when the communists invaded, pretty much all religion was kind of banned as well, because, you know, communism, they don't support any type of religion. So between the Catholics and the Buddhists and the philosophy that goes behind the religion goes against, you know, the idea of communism. So a lot of priests and nuns were arrested, monks as well. So, right. so she wanted to stay behind and protect the village. And, you know, at the time, you know, before they seized, because also what happened was they seized all your property and they made it into government, you know, buildings, or they gave it to, you know, the, their soldiers. This was their reward. They would take from, from the traders and they would give them the reward um, for fighting for North Vietnam. So yeah. that was another thing that my grandmother stayed behind was to protect um, to say like, hey, I live here. I'm staying here. I'm not escaping. So don't don't take our house and don't take our land. Yeah. So, Did was she able to live out her life doing what she yes. wanted so to she, do and what she was good at? Yes, yes, she did. <laughs> she did. Um, she uh, I think she passed in 2005. I got to see her a couple times. Um, oh, good. She is, was a sharp and strong as she was, <laughs> you know, my mom, like I could see like how my mom is how she is. Cause she, 
I mean, I, I would eat rice with her. And she told me like, um, if I dropped a piece of rice, she's like, Twee. Uh, she says it's in Vietnamese, like, you know, normally if you were younger, like a kid, you would, you know, not waste food like that, you know, and I usually will hit you with like my cane. <laughs> Goodness. And she's like, it's like, because you're, you're visiting and you're from America. She's like, you know, make sure you don't drop your food outside your bowl. You know, you're a dog now. You know? <laughs> That's funny. You know? But she seriously did. She would, she would, she just, she would like hit me with the cane. Like <laughs> when, when, when I, one, if I, you know, if I said something that was impolite because my Vietnamese was, you know, like, like, you know, it was American Vietnamese because I grew up in America. So the Vietnamese I learned was from my mom and it was very Southern. And my mom, you know, I call her like, uh, she had like the Irish Vietnamese, like she cursed all the time. And so <laughs> the only thing I picked up was, was her, you know, I didn't, was I didn't bad language, but, but, but the language she used was not very polite, you know? And so that's what I learned. And so when I, when I, but I changed very quickly because my, my grandmother put me in line, but that um, is too an amazing. Woman. Yeah. Yeah. Super well, and I just remind everybody, we're speaking today with Twee um, Wynn Rocco, Emory Henry class of 2002, who is going to be on campus soon talking about her, her memoir, Last Surviving Child, and she's going to be on campus on, on March the 14th. Are, wait, are you going to be here or are you doing this by Zoom? I'm going to be on campus. How I'm exciting. Dinner with some faculty and, you know, I hope you're there too. I'm going oh, to be there in person. I'm going to mm-hmm. elbow my way into that dinner. Yes, I am. And- <laughs> yes. And I'm going to bring my nine-year-old son so he can see where, oh. you know, I went to college and he's very excited to come. You know, well, I bet. Help us understand a little bit better too, at this point in your life, why it was important for you to write this book now. It took me, what, let's see, 33 years, 33 years to recognize that my story, a lot of refugees have went through, but not a lot of people talk about it. And I think I was going through a time where, um, you know, America was going through a lot of anti-immigration, anti-immigrant sentiments that I could feel feel it. And so I wanted to share my story and and be, um, I just wanted to be honest with people. Like this this is, it's not as easy as everyone sees, like Mm -hmm. we, you know, and I wanted to explain, like, there's so many things that happen uh, to immigrants and refugees and why we escape. And, and we definitely don't want to be a burden on anyone, you know. And that's so that's not, yeah, that's not your show. goal. Yeah. Right. Um, and, you know, and I wanted to share my story so that other immigrants and refugees could share their story. And it ended up being a lot like that. So um, there are a lot of struggles that I had. And I think um, it helped me put a mirror in front of me and it was a kind of therapy almost. It's like, Mm -hmm. I recognized that not everyone has this story. And a lot of people I knew even growing up never knew any part of my story. They thought I was this normal kid, you know, smart, you know, normal, living a good family life. But I wanted to shine a light on that is like we, we live through life and we all have these struggles. Right. And that's what the fabric of humanity is, is that, you know, we have to have this conversation um, and this empathy and compassion for each other, no matter where we come from. And that book that I wrote was to start that conversation for those 
And there were friends, there were acquaintances, there were anti-immigrant. And I would have these conversations with them. Like, you, you know someone, you know me. Right. And, so oh, and they it, just it, hadn't it, even it, thought about that. Right. And, and, you know, the person next to you, and no matter where they come from, you know, they have their own struggles. And as human beings, we have to open ourselves up to the empathy and compassion and the capacity to help one another understand. And so that was really my goal of writing my book was to create this understanding between, you know, um, between our cultures and between people's opinions. But there's a lot more hum human, there are human faces to a lot of the struggles. And it's more than politics. It's more than, you know, anything, it's more than hatred. You know, deep down, a lot of people fear that, that it was the main reason, driving reason why people don't accept certain people. And so I wanted to talk to my friends and acquaintances through my book that I'm a human person and these are my struggles and I hope you understand them and continue to be more empathetic and compassionate. Do you, do you find that people seem to have a different understanding of the world after hearing what you've been through? Yes. Um, a lot of people, um, a lot of people empathize with me. And even people who haven't, who didn't even know any refugees or immigrants, they, they started, a lot of people contacted me all over the world, actually, had, you know, emails from New Zealand, you know, I've, it's really wonderful. Um, you know, I had people give books and they contact me like, I gave this book to my friend in Singapore and she's a teacher and she's going to, you know, give that up to her students, you know? Yeah. And so it was spreading like a conversation of the struggles, even if you don't have that experience, you know, we all have our own struggles. And, and I think that's where the connection is, is that um, being understanding of each other's struggles. Yeah. And like I said, I didn't think my story was extraordinary. I thought every kid grew up like I did. I really did, you know? And that's something. And and, you know, when I tell my story to when, when, when I did talk to people, you know, people were like, Twee, you know, that that's not normal, you know, or, <laughs> you know, like that's definitely, you know, you, you've been through a lot. If I'm struggling, then I need to even tell my story more so that people who are like me know that they're not alone. So that was another reason to share my story was that I, I felt alone for a while, um, I was like, okay, well, now I know that I'm really different, that I'm growing, I grew up in a different childhood, you know, a different life. And so I wanted to be like, you know what, I can't be the only one. And I know I'm not the only one. So I, you know, that's another reason I, why I wrote my story. And, and, and it, a lot of refugee immigrants reached out to me oh, nice. and, learned, and they wanted to share their story. And I, you know, and I even taught like a, you know, a workshop to help them write their own stories. It's very oh, empowering. Awesome. Mm -hmm. for the the api community um we have like a pretty large um uh, immigrant refugee population here in nashville so it, i did a couple walk workshops with writing and a lot of them are, have english as second language and they're worried like twee you know my english is not that good i was like it's not the language it's the story mm -hmm. don't worry about the language just Put tell the story. story out there I love that. And you were saying that it has helped some people around you feel differently about what your experience has been. How has it helped 
you as you process all of this? Has writing your story sort of helped you work through some things better? Yes. So um, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't, I would say like I, um, you know, we all struggle with mental health and self-care. And, you know, during the pandemic and beyond that too, there are a lot of, you know, situations now arising anti-Asian hate crimes, things like that. All that really, really affected me. It kind of gave me a flashback of when I was little being bullied for being different, you know, and all the racism and prejudice that I experienced because of the way I look. And, you know, and it does, it, it, it's like something that you tucked away and then suddenly you see it again. Yeah. Cause I was like, I, I'm, I'm this successful person. I am shielded from that, but I wasn't, you know? Yeah. yeah. And so I was like, you know, maybe it's time for me to, to stop shielding myself and open myself up. Right. So writing really helps me and, you know, uh, sharing my story with others. And, and that was a vehicle for my self-care because if you close up and, you know, internalize everything that you felt, all the trauma there, it only leads to a dark place, right. you know, did, and yeah. it was a form of therapy for me. So writing everything out made me process and recognize the things that I should, you know, definitely all the skeletons in the closet and then I, I really just forced myself like, hey, Twee, what if you weren't afraid? What if you weren't afraid to write whatever you want? Who cares what anyone says? What if you weren't afraid? And that's what, you know, my, uh, my thinking was. It's like, I need to stop being afraid wow. and be brave and just, just write and not worry about what people think. And, and, and it had to be encouraging when other people came back to you and said oh me too I I know what that feels like yes yes and there was a lot of um when I first released the book there was a lot of um you know uh, media things like that and I got to participate in the very big book festival the southern festival of books whoa you know it was very you know I got to do a lot of prestigious things yeah. But my, my favorite ones were my one-on-one conversations with young immigrant and refugees that said, hey, I know your story. And I, I lived it. Wow. You know, we are under our own, you know? Yeah, so really I did, yeah. For that, for me, that connection one-on-one for people to come up to me and say, hey, thank you for sharing your story because it made me seem like I'm not the only one in the world. And that, you know, look at you. You, I mean, that's exactly what you had hoped for. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that's, that's like a dream realized right there, just that it could help some other people. That's right. Well, tell me just real quickly, we're about to run out of time, but I I have a thousand more questions, but but let me me not ask a thousand, but tell me what your time at Emory and Henry was like. I really, it was a time that I was away from my family and all my responsibilities. You know, growing up in an immigrant family, being the only old enough English speaking person, you have a lot of responsibilities to take care of your parents. Um, even my, my half brothers, my mom remarried. I have a stepfather. Um, it was a lot of things to take care of. Sure. Um, and so when I went to Emory and Henry, I was 
pulled out of my family circle. And it was really a breath of fresh air. And it was very welcoming. I know Emory and Henry wasn't very diverse when I was there, but everyone there was, I mean, amazing, accepting, inclusive, the professors. I always, I remember having an hour and a half conversation with the admissions counselor. And I was like, this is the school for me. Oh. I had many other offers. Emory and Henry offered me a very large scholarship. Um, I had professors that supported me uh, throughout my academic time there. I remember I had, I, I still was an American citizen when I went to Emory and Henry because my citizenship papers were lost and I had oh, to so go you were abroad. Yes, I was in a lot of trouble. Um, and, and I was like, I was, I was, I had a week left to get on that plane. I didn't have a passport. Oh my goodness. Um, and I remember, you know, Dr. Salib and all the, all the, you know, peop, all the professors at Emory and Henry got together and contacted the governor of Virginia and said, Hey, we have a student and she needs to go study abroad, <laughs> get her there. And I remember the governor uh, office calling me and said, we have a temporary you know, passport that you can take with you. Wow. And that's what they did for me. And, uh, you know, it's amazing. It's amazing. And like I said, dinners with the professors, I, I always, I had a great core of friends. I volunteered like to like with with 10 organizations there. (laughs) I was like, Oh my goodness. (laughs) I was like Habitat for Humanity. Like uh, there was the multicultural students. Like I, I did everything. I, I volunteered for like even outside in the community. And I mean, I was always volunteering because it was just, I felt like so empowered there. And I learned, I think for the basis and moral and ethics that I, foundation for me was, you know, like Dr. Fisher's um, public policy class really set forth all the stuff that I wanted to do in uh, helping the nonprofit sectors and all the social aspects and the things that I wanted to do for social change really, really pulled me um, in after I graduated from Emory and Henry. And I, you know, I, I worked for a nonprofit for a long time helping um, immigrant and refugees after that. And well, you had seen firsthand just how necessary those kinds of services mm-hmm. are. Yep. Yep. And Emory and Henry um, allowed me to travel. I mean, all everything I learned there, I really, really applied. And, you know, people don't think about that. Like they, they think, oh, well, you know, college, you learn all these things and, you know, you just don't, don't use it. And I really (laughs) did. Like, you know, I remember that it was a requirement to take some religion courses. I really appreciated that because without that, I think I would have had a lot of prejudice against other religions, you know, just to be able to learn all the good aspects of every religion that I really understood going into when I worked with a lot of other, you know, diverse, you know, um, backgrounds who were a different religion that I could understand like why, why it is the way it is. Yeah. And I had a lot more empathy that way. What are you doing now? You have your own company. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'm pretty ambitious. <laughs> so I uh, left the nonprofit sector and I joined technology um, because, you know, technology is so, the sector is so growing so rapidly. 
and I opened my own technology consulting company with my husband. He's a architect, software engineer, senior. So we build software programs for hospitals, big, big organizations and companies. I work with, I build workflow systems and e-learning platforms. It was really big during pandemic as well, you know, building learning programs. Um, So that was my my for-profit business. Uh, My husband and I recently started a nonprofit for, with Taekwondo. We've been studying Taekwondo almost 20 years. And I live in a community where it's a huge need for mental health and physical activity. The kids here really, really need, they come from different socioeconomic backgrounds. And we really needed a place where, you know, high risk um, students would be able to study it despite their income level, despite where they come from. So we opened, we called Taekwondo Anywhere, um, and it's a nonprofit. And my husband and I teach there with a whole bunch of kids and adults. <laughs> <laughs> and we teach them the idea of self-defense, not only physical self-defense, but mental self-defense. Um, the things that kids really need, leadership skills. We actually are gonna partner with National Public Television to showcase you know, how Taekwondo helps our physical activity helps mental health. Our students are gonna get to share their experiences and their story. And it's gonna be amazing for them because they've never, when you grow up at risk community, no one sees you and and everyone's having a hard time. So it's a great experience for these students to share their story on public television. So they're very, very excited about it. So those are the few things I do work-wise. And also I'm always, you know, talking and sharing and doing workshops about my book. And I also am an editor for a South Korean company um, for their international students who want to apply for colleges. So I am an essay coach as well to help students share their story. Because a lot of times, you know, um, when you write your essay for entrance into college, a lot of students don't think about their story. They think about what the requirements are. They think about what the college wants, but really colleges want to see you. You're a different person. So those are some of my projects that I'm doing. Okay, so I only have 24 hours in my day and I sleep about half of that. So so how many hours are in your day? Because that's a whole lot of stuff. So I have a nine-year-old and an almost (laughs) two-year-old. Okay, and I have a that's 24 dog. hours right there. <laughs> so I don't sleep very much. But you know what? You know, people always look at me like, you're always doing way so much. Like, how do you have time? You know, you make time. You make time for the things you really care about. And so that's what um, I've really changed is, you know, um, running your own company is a lot, but it, it's flexible. You know, when my kids are asleep, I'm probably working, (laughs) but when they're awake, I'm playing with them. So that gives me that, that, you know, flexibility. And secondly, you know, um, I'm doing Taekwondo because it keeps me physically active, mentally healthy. um, And it's something that my family does together. So my nine-year-old, me, my husband, we do it together. And when the two-year-old has enough attention, (laughs) then he will join as well. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. But it is a lot of time. And I'm, I'm, I've always been a very um, conscious of how valuable time is. 
So I take the time to do work, but also take time to have self-care. And, yeah. and a lot of that is, is really key. Well, that is, a, that is a terrific lesson to learn in life. And it's a terrific lesson to share with others, because I think you're right. And unfortunately, some people, some people forget about that part about taking care of yourself and it, it'll catch up with you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, Twee Win Rocco, I cannot tell you how honored I am that you would take this time to talk to me. Thank you so much. Thank you, Monica. And thank you for ENH College for having me. And I will see you all very soon. I know. Okay. So your, your last year on campus is March 14. So if anybody's interested, uh, we could, we'll, we'll share the link to that information. And your book is available. How can we get your book? You can get it from any like any bookstore, any bookstore. And okay. it's also available online. So okay. you just have to search The Last Surviving Child. But please support your local bookstore. Oh, I love a person who likes the local bookstore. <laughs> and while we're talking about it, just we're just going to see who all actually listens to the podcast. We're going to have an extended um, conversation. I'm just going to put the whole thing up on the podcast. We'll have to shorten it for the radio. But let's see who listens to the end. And I'm going to say... The first two people who send me an email, I'm going to give them a copy of your book. I'm going to order some as soon as we hang up, and I'm going to have, give away two copies to the first people who get in touch with me. So let's see who, who listens in. Oh, that's amazing. Thank All you. Right. <laughs> Twee, thank you so much. And I want to thank everybody for listening to WEHC today. And I just don't think I've ever been as proud to say this, but WEHC is the voice of Southwest Virginia, and Twee is one of those voices. Mm-hmm.